This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Um, yeah, so this evening I'll be giving a talk on Amitabha and the path of kindness. So if you're here at the start of this series of talks, you might remember me saying that um, enlightenment is beyond what we can imagine, and this is both fantastic and problematic. It's fantastic because it means it's, it's better than we can imagine. It's something really worth living for, really worth aiming for really worth striving for, devoting our life to. But it's problematic as well that it's beyond our imagination because we can't imagine enlightenment. And there's a danger that we might end up aiming for something which we can imagine, which would be, um, mean the goal of our Dharma life just becomes dull, um, less attractive, less worth making the effort for, not really worth getting out of bed for in the morning. So in, within True Ratna, in the, in the Dharma life, we, we have a, an area of practice called spiritual rebirth practice. And this is the area of practice where we, we cultivate an imaginative connection with the goal of Buddhism. And we, we, we consciously cultivate an imaginative connection with the goal, even a devotional connection with, with, our, with enlightenment, with our own potential, with reality. Um, and because it's beyond what we can imagine, and, and also enlightenment is beyond words and concepts, probably the best way to engage with it is through symbols. And um, yeah, there was, Buddhism's full of symbols of enlightenment that are packed full of meaning. Um, yeah, they're alive with reality. We can engage with these symbols, and these symbols are full of meaning and alive with reality. And we've, on, during the series, been engaging with and exploring one particular very famous symbol of enlightenment called the mandala of the five Buddhas, or the five jinnas. Um, and it involves five different coloured Buddhas in, in different directions. And, um, yeah, one way of looking at this is it's as though it's an exploded diagram of, of enlightenment. When you zoom into it, it shows all the kind of connected parts of enlightenment. And I more recently got a, an idea of what that means because I've been doing Lego with my son, my son Robert. <laughs> and when you go through the Lego instructions, it shows you what the part is supposed to look like, but it shows you all the other parts that kind of form it, kind of zooming in. Um, so it's a bit like that. You kind of you zoom out from the whole of enlightenment. You can see it broken up into different parts, different coloured Buddhas. Um, each of the Buddhas emphasises a different path to enlightenment and a different aspect of enlightenment. And they're, they're full, they're rich with symbolism. So last, well, actually, last week we had the Mitra ceremony. So two weeks ago, Vidanya um, introduced us to the east-west axis, axic axis. That's hard to say. The east-west axis of this mandala, and um, it looks like it's kind of the, the vertical axis on this diagram. But if you use your imaginations, it's, you could see it's 3D. So the blue ones kind of coming out towards you, and the red ones behind you. Just imagine that's the east and the west. Um, and on the east and west axis, there are two Buddhas: a blue Buddha and a red Buddha. The Buddha Akshobhya in the west, the blue Buddha, and the red Buddha Amitabha in the west. So Akshobhya in the east, Amitabha in the west. And they contrast their contrasting, um, complementary and contrasting uh, Buddha figures. So Vidanya introduced us to Akshobhya. 
Um, and the path of the Vajra, Akshobhya, holds or wields the Vajra, which Vedanya called the ultimate weapon, the diamond thunderbolt. And Akshobhya is blue and is associated with um, dawn and clear, cool, a cool, clear mind, clear thinking, a wisdom that sees things as they are. And as a result, Akshobhya is unshakable. His name means unshakable. And that, yeah, Akshobhya in the east contrasts with Amitabha in the, in the west, um, and the lotus family of Amitabha. So Amitabha, is, um, his name means infinite light. And I love this, this image of Amitabha, which I think is from the London Buddhist Centre. Just kind of, yeah, Amitabha, um, made out of red light. His name means infinite light. And red is the colour of passion. It's the colour of emotion, of love. So Amitabha's path is the path of heart, the path of kindness, the path of feeling and emotion. We've, we've had these really beautiful paintings done by Garava, an order member in Sheffield, which we've been um, giving you a copy of each week when we introduce the Buddhas. So you can see some of the symbolism contrasted between um, Akshobhya and Amitabha. We heard from Vidanya two weeks ago that um, the Vajra, the path of the Vajra, it's a metaphor for a particular approach to enlightenment, which is breaking through obstacles, breaking through old habits, and the, the energy of the Vajra, using the energy of the Vajra to break through into enlightenment, seizing the initiative and breaking through. Um, but by contrast, Amitabha's symbol is a symbol of the lotus. And the lotus gives us a different metaphor for the, the path of practice, the metaphor of growth. Um, so growth, the growth of a plant, of a flower, involves gradual, systematic, gradual change, gradual progress, bit by bit. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't know a lot about plants, but I trust Vidanya, who does know a lot about plants, and he described how um, plants grow the other week. Um, first of all, they, take, they, they grow roots, they take roots down, then the little kind of tiny seedling starts to develop and then it gets stronger, the stem grows and then other bits happen like leaves and, <laughs> leaves and flowers and stuff like that. <laughs> so the, it, it happens gradually, like the next, you know, the next thing, the next stage of growth happens, comes out of the fullness of the previous stage. And this is a really good metaphor for the Dharma life, for the spiritual life. In a way, you can't, you can't force a flower to have a flower, you can't afford a se force a seedling to have a flower. You create the conditions, you put the conditions in place and the plant will grow and it will naturally, it will grow, the, the plant will grow. So you give the, the flower you know, fertilizer, soil, water, sunlight, and it will grow. They're the conditions it needs to grow. And it's the same for the Dharma life, for us, for our own growth. So we've got this metaphor from the lotus of, of systematic, gradual growth dependent on conditions. And Amitabha, the Buddha Amitabha, here's another image of Amitabha. From Amitabha's perspective, he can see the, the flower, he can see the, the kind of fully bloomed plant within the seedling, within us as we are now. Amitabha can see the potential. The wisdom of Amitabha sees the potential in us, the potential beauty, the potential Buddha in every living being and draws it out of them. And the followers of Amitabha, those who devote themselves to Amitabha, also delight in what is best in other people and long to draw it out of them. So the path of Amitabha, the path of the lotus, is the path of kindness, the path of friendliness, the path of love. And kindness is like the sun. This is a, a metaphor that Sangharachit has introduced, which I really love. Kindness, being on the receiving end of kindness, is, is like being in the warm rays of the sun. So, yeah, as, as um, 
as I revealed, I don't know a lot about plants growing, but I definitely know you need, you need sunlight for plants to grow. And it's as if in, in the kind of the end of the winter, the plants can kind of sense the heat and the light of the sun and start to push out the soil, grow towards, and move towards the sun poetically. And then when they feel the warmth of the sun each morning, the, the, the petals open, they open in the sunlight. And in the same way, human beings respond to kindness from other people in the same way as flowers respond to the sun. If we're on the receiving end of kindness, we, we relax, we open up, we smile, our hearts open. And then all these positive and beautiful emotions can start to flow when we're on the receiving end of kindness. So Sangharachatu in his, his talk, and which got made into a book called The Ten Pillars, looking at the ten precepts, ten ethical precepts, he talks about kindly speech in this way. Kindly speech is like the warm rays of the rising sun that cause leaves to expand and flowers to open. People often don't realise how positive an effect can be produced by a few friendly words. Kindly speech should be habitual to us, not just something we keep for use in emergencies or for special occasions or special people. So those of us who were lucky enough to be here last week, last Tuesday evening when we had the Mitchisonies, will have, will have seen the effects of kindly speech when um, 10 different people stood up and rejoiced in the 10 people who became Mitchis last week. And it's such a beautiful and moving and positive atmosphere gets created. Um, and when someone rejoices and names a positive quality in you, it strengthens it. It's, um, it has the effect of, of witnessing it, strengthening it. It's as though you, can't, you don't fully see it yourself sometimes, but someone just rejoicing and naming a quality draws it out of you, it strengthens it. So kindness have a, has a really positive effect on other people. But what about the, the effect it has on us? Um, if you've ever tried deliberately acting with more kindness, you'll know it makes you feel good. It makes you feel happy and, and better. And um, I loved hearing, I was very moved and loved hearing Edward talking about um, Jim when he became a Mitchell last week, that Jim had, on doing the introductory course, tried being generous and giving some money to a charity collector in a supermarket, and then they'd smiled and, and um, yeah, it made him feel happy. So then he, as he's walking past another person, he smiled to them and they smiled. And then Edward said, Jim just then made the decision to always try and be kind to everybody he saw. Why don't I always do this? So um, yeah, I just thought that was, that was a lovely, I loved that. I really enjoyed that, hearing about that. So yeah, it basically has a really positive effect on us as well. It draws the best out of others, but it has a great effect on us. But there's, a, there's an even further benefit to kindness because the law of karma tells us if we change our, beha our behavior and we develop new creative ways of acting, it changes our consciousness our consciousness is transformed. Um, so when we consciously try and see the best in other people and act out of kindness, we live in a different realm. We see the world completely differently. We see a world full of beauty. We see a, a pure land full of beautiful people with great qualities. We delight in other people and we experience joy. So through practicing kindness and kindly speech, rejoicing in the merits of other people, our own consciousness becomes more expansive more beautiful and we are more deeply connected to the world and people around us. From just trying to cultivate looking at what's best in other people and naming it, we start more naturally beginning to see that. We start to see the best in other people. We start to see through the eyes of Amitabha, the wisdom of Amitabha. So each Buddha in the mandala has a, a different wisdom. And the wisdom of Amitabha um, is the wisdom that sees what is best in, in every living being. He sees what's unique and special and um, great in every living being. And um, that wisdom also has a, an emotional, volitional counterpart, which just 
really wants what's best for, for those people, longs to draw it out, wants to develop what's best in other people. Samitabha's wisdom is sometimes called the discriminating wisdom, but that can, doesn't, you know, it's, not, it's not an ideal translation, really. It's not so clear. But it's basically it's the wisdom that sees what is unique and special about every living being and longs to draw it out of them and loves them for that. So every Buddha has a wisdom. Every Buddha in the mandala has a, their own wisdom, which gives us a glimpse into enlightenment, really. It gives us a glimpse into what enlightenment might be like. And every Buddha also has a poison that they transform into, into the wisdom. So Amitabha, Amitabha's poison is the poison of craving. So if our mind is poisoned by craving, we, we can see what's special in others, we can see what's attractive in other people. But rather than wanting what's best for them, we just want them. We just want that other person. We want to possess them, to sleep with them, to manipulate them so we don't lose them. Um, we think obsessively about them. We're jealous when they're with somebody else. So there's a near enemy of metta. Um, it looks like metta, and it can sometimes be mistaken for metta, but it's definitely not metta. And there's a very obvious opposite of metta. The opposite of metta would be cruelty, just wanting other people to suffer. But um, there's a, the near enemy of metta, and that's called pema. So pema is what we sometimes in the West call love, describe as love, but it's not the same as metta. So Pema is a more exclusive, um, conditional, subjective, possessive version of love. It's a, a love with attachments. And we sometimes, sometimes gets translated as, as a sticky love. It's like we, you know, we kind of, we're grasping, kind of trying to desperately hold on to the, the thing that we're, we, we love. Yeah, so the poison that Amitabha transforms is craving, is, is, is basically really, really seeing what's attractive in other people, but craving them, wanting them. Um, yeah, and one way of connecting with the, the Buddhas can be through the poisons, the poisons of the Buddhas. Um, so if you're like me and you're a greed type, I'm, I'm, I, am, I admit to being a greed type, an addictive personality, I find it easy to like people and I find it easy to like the world. Um, but it can also be easy to get into an obsessive, addictive a relationship to people and things. So if you're like me, if you have that kind of um, temperament, then connecting with Amitabha, his image, his qualities, his mantra, his wisdom, can transform that craving in, and that pema into metta, into loving kindness. So for me, um, I wasn't actually that interested in the poison. That, that didn't kind of attract me. But basically, because I'm, I'm a greed type and a craving type, I was attracted to the beauty. I was attracted to the beautiful mantra to the red colour, um, by the joy and the delight of loving other people. So that's what really hooked me into Amitabha. It wasn't so much the, um, the poison, but actually that, you know, I can see that I am of that nature and Amitabha is really um, appropriate for me. Yeah, so it, it, all I want to say about that is it may be that you see one of the poisons and you say, yeah, that's definitely me. But if, if, you're, if you're drawn to any other aspect of, of these, these Buddhas, that might be the mantra, the, some of the symbolism, the colours, that's what's important, your emotional response to them. Um, it may or may not be the, the poison. Okay. And each of the five Buddhas has got a, an animal that's associated with them. Um, with Akshobi, it was the elephant, which was um, a really great symbol of being unshakable and unmovable. With Amitabha, it's the peacock, which I've never really understood, actually. I've kind of, I like peacocks, but I kind of, it's a symbol that intrigues me. 
Well, there is a myth, there's a legend associated with the peacock, which is that the peacock uh, feeds on poisonous snakes, it's said in this, this myth, this legend. And it's the poison that gets transformed into the beautiful plumage. The beauty of the peacock's plumage comes from feeding on the, and transmuting the poison of the poisonous snakes. So I suppose it hints at, it hints at how our, you know, if you've got that nature where you see what's great in people and things, but you, you kind of crave and grasp after them. Well, actually, that's a poison that can be transformed. If you've got that capacity to really see what's um, great and attractive in other people and beautiful in other people, well, that can be transformed into the, into the wisdom of Amitabha, into loving kindness that just wants, you know, in a way, just sees without, without attachment, loves without attachment. So there's another way into this. Amitabha's time of day is sunset. So each of the Buddhas also has a different time of day. So Amitabha's type of time of day is sunset. And I think this really draws out how you can move from a kind of, a kind of damaging um, love to a, a really nurturing love. So I think, yeah, I think the time of day here is very, very significant because at sunset you can enjoy the warmth of the sun without getting harmed, without the sun harming you. Um, so you can look at the sun without it damaging your eyes at sunset. And you can be in the sun without getting burnt, without getting your skin burnt, which is really important to me because I, I burn really, really easily. I've got a kind of a ginger, kind of fair complexion, so I like two minutes in the sun and I'm just red raw. But at sunset, you can be in the sun and it doesn't, it doesn't harm you, it doesn't damage you. So Amitabha's love is like this. It's, it's, it's a love without the damaging effects of attachment. It's a love without conditions, an unconditional love. It's a love without expectations. It doesn't want anything back. So it's a love that just benefits others, like the warm sun at sunset. It warms and nourishes, and nourishes us and relaxes and inspires other people without harming them. Okay. And then the last, I think the, the last detail I'd like to introduce you to around Amitabha, the, the last... Um, aspect is the mudra, the gesture. So each of the Buddhas we've told you has a different gesture or mudra with their hands. And Amitabha's gesture, Amitabha's mudra, is the dhyana mudra, the mudra of meditation. So his hands are like this, and he's not holding a, a, a kind of projector thing. He's just got his. <laughs> you imagine that's not there. He's, hold, he's got his hands in meditation posture, and he's seated in full lotus position in meditation posture. So he's the classic. Buddha that you often see in shops and garden centers, the meditating Buddha. Amitabha is, is the meditating Buddha. And again, this is very significant. So craving, the poison that Amitabha transforms, craving comes from an inner emptiness, a sense of lack, inner desolation. Just looking for things out there, anything out there, desperately trying to find something out there to fill an inner void, to try and bring satisfaction. But Amitabha's meditation posture and his meditation gesture symbolize transforming craving into contentment through meditation. So Amitabha sits in meditation posture with his hands in the meditation gesture and his senses are calmed, his senses are stilled and he experiences the delight and the joy, the beauty and the bliss. He experiences the beauty and the bliss of higher meditative states. So some of you might have experienced more absorbed meditative states, meditative states on retreat sometimes, or a deeper level of contentment. Um, yeah, it's as though on retreat there can be, this is how I experience it, there's an outer renunciation, your life is more simple. Um, it, and it creates an inner calm, this outer renunciation and simplicity creates an inner calm and a tranquility. 
out of which flows inner riches, uh, inner abundance. So there's no void on the tree. I don't experience you know, a lack of anything. I don't feel like I need anything. There's, there's not craving there. So through meditation, through calming the senses, kind of calming, craving, um, we can experience uh, an inner riches, inner abundance, where we don't, you know, there's a, there's a deep contentment, a deep satisfaction. Which sounds great, doesn't it? That sounds really good. I, I want more of that. Um, so having introduced you, that's a, a kind of a brief introduction to some of the aspects of Amitabha. I want to explore, well, how do we engage with, with Amitabha? How do we follow a path of Amitabha, a path of kindness? So there's a very obvious, Amitabha's seated in meditation posture, and there's a very obvious meditation um, associated with cultivating a heart of kindness, cultivating eyes that see the best in other people, and cultivating an inabundance of the, the Brahma Viharas, the, the divine abodes, the heavenly realms. And that's very obviously the Metabhavna meditation, the Metabhavna. So the Metabhavna is a fantastic practice. I love the Metabhavna. Um, it's really, really potent. I found it to be a really potent practice. So not necessarily for the 35 or 40 minutes I sit down and meditate. It doesn't, it's not necessarily potent and abundant there. Sometimes it is, but not necessarily. What I found is doing the Metabhavna for years and years and years and years, it's transformed my inner world. My emotions are completely different and my relationships with other people are completely different from, as a result of just regularly doing the Metabhavna practice. It's, it's, it's magical, it is like magic. Um, I could tell stories about it, but I'm not going to because I'll, I always go over time and I'm going to try and not go over time. Um, but some, if, you, if you ask me, I'll tell you a story in the tea break about <laughs> Metabhavna and how magic the Metabhavna is. But I know not everybody finds the Metabhavna practice easy. Um, so how can we improve our practice of Metabhavna? So the metaphor of the lotus um, shows us that we need conditions in place. If we want our meditation practice to go deeper, it needs the right conditions to be in place. That growth and transformation can only take place within particular conditions. Um, so transforming our heart through the practice of metabhavna, it really involves a whole life devoted to kindness and to reducing craving. That's what it really involves, a whole life devoted to cultivating kindness and reducing craving. And this path of a whole life devoted to kindness is laid out in, a, in the Buddha's famous teaching called the Karaniya Metta Sutta, which those of us who were here last week, we heard the Karaniya Metta Sutta read out as part of the, the Mitra ceremonies. So it's a really beautiful text. It lays out the path of kindness, how to live according to a path devoted to kindness. And it gives a complete path of practice. So I just want to spend the rest of the talk just briefly exploring the structure of the Karaniya Metta Sutta, this really beautiful text. And just, just exploring how it lays out a path of practice, a path of kindness that we can follow. And the Buddha uses a structure in, in this text on the, in the Karaniya Metta Sutta, this discourse on loving kindness. He uses a, a, a structure that he uses over and over again throughout his teachings to different people, which we call the threefold path of Buddhism. So the threefold path of Buddhism is ethics, meditation, and wisdom. So if you want, I mean, starting with the wisdom of Amitabha, if you want to have the wisdom of Amitabha, if you want to see people through those loving eyes, see what's best in people and really want what's best for people, well, then you need to really, you really devote yourself to, to the Metabhavana meditation practice. 
and I'll say more about that in a minute. But um, what I would say, if you, want, if you really want to know the essence of the Metabhavana practice, listen to a talk that Padma Vajra gave a few weeks ago at the end of our last series. He talked about how to work in the five stages of the Metabhavana. And I, I can't do better than that. I just say, listen to that talk. It's a, a fantastic talk. What I will say is that meditation is weighty karma, and the Metabhavana is weighty karma. So in, in the, the period of metabhavna, uh, meditation when you're on the cushion, your mind is more su supple, it's more malleable, more, more flexible. So the changes you make in meditation will have a longer lasting effect than just being on the cushion. It has a karmic effect, it will, it will, it's, it's weighty karma. You can make significant karmic changes in the, in the course of your metabhavna. You might not realize it, but it has a real impact on your consciousness. Um, so yeah, so but if, if we are looking at the conditions that need to be in place, if, so according to the threefold path, wisdom will arise out of an effective meditation practice. But an effective meditation practice will only arise with a life that is lived ethically, an ethical life, a life lived according to the precepts. So the Karaniya Metta Sutta begins with, if you know what's truly good for you and you want to reach a state of perfect peace, which in a way is the wisdom of Amitabha, that, that divine abode, then this is how you need to live. The Buddha tells us this is how you need to live. And the Buddha says, start by becoming a capable person who is honest and straightforward, gently spoken, flexible and not conceited. Yeah, so basically how you live your life is very obviously going to affect your meditation practice. If you're spending your whole life um, focused on yourself and very selfish interests. Um, yeah, if you're not practicing kindness in your everyday life, then when you sit down to meditate, the mind that you're going to experience, you're going to be presented with a mind that's leaning just towards indifference towards other people and kind of self-interest. That's the kind of mind you're going to be presented with when you sit down to, to meditate. Um, so the Buddha tells us to be honest and straightforward to start with, be a capable person, be gently spoken, flexible and not conceited. So we need to be taming the ego, we need to tame our craving and just tame our conceit, uh, our, our ego, be humble, not conceited. Um, you know, we need to rein, and under, rein in and undermine our selfishness in daily life. Um, and then when we sit down to meditate, our mind is going to be less self-interested. It sounds obvious, but it, you know, it's as simple as that, basically. Um, and then the Buddha says, have respect for others and avoid greed and craving. So yes, yeah, so if you want to transform the poison of craving in meditation, well, then you need to be doing that in the rest of your life as well. You need to avoid greed and craving in your day-to-day -day life, which isn't you know, that attractive to a greed type like myself. I, can't, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to rein in my greed and my craving, but, you know, I need to. Uh, and again, it sounds obvious, but, you know, you need to. Um, so if you're not trying to reduce your craving actively, it's living by the third precept, reducing craving, trying to simplify your life, cultivate contentment. If you're not doing that on a day-to-day -day basis, then, you know, your, your meditation practice is, is um, yeah, you're not, you're not going to be able to cultivate that, that love free of craving. You're not going to be able to experience that in abundance, that, that beauty that comes from deep absorption in meditation. So then the Buddha says, don't be influenced by the ways of the world and don't do anything unworthy that wiser people would criticize. So for me, this draws out a particular aspect of craving. We crave the approval of other people. So often we'll be unethical 
just because we want other people to like us. We're, we're influenced by the ways of the world. We want status. We want praise. We want people to like us. So we might not always be, uh, be ethical. So this is a, there's a list called the worldly winds that some people might be familiar with. But the Buddha says, well, in a way, base your, your action on what wise people would criticise, not what you know, your unwise people that you're surrounded by in the world would think is, is, is high status and worthy. Just think about people that you admire and just think, and think, well, would they do this? Would they do this? How would they behave in that situation? And that's a basis for your ethical choices, not craving approval or status. And sometimes you will be, be criticised by other people. You might do something that a worthy person wouldn't, wouldn't criticise, but you might be criticised by the rest of the people for it. Okay. And then the Buddha says, then become contented and happy, which yeah, sounds straightforward. Become contented and happy um, with few worries and a simple life. I mean, and that is a lot in that, isn't it? Just you can be contented and happy if you have a simple life with few worries. Um, yeah, if you support Liverpool like I do, then it was just a real relief when the season ended. Actually, like just having the whole season being, you know, are they going to win the league? Are they win the league? Oh, few. They didn't win the league. I can relax now. It's just like the more full you make your life of of, of concerns. Well, the more worry there is, you know, the fewer, the simpler life you have, you have fewer worries. It's, you know, it's, again, it's, it sounds very, very obvious, but it's, it's hard to live by, isn't it? Um, yes, yeah, so we need to create, tame this craving for outer things that are going to give us happiness and just instead have a simple life with fewer worries. Um, and I had, an, you know, a very strong experience of, of this. We heard about um, a Mayika who's going to come back on Sunday and be welcomed back as a new order member. Well, I spent... Um, 16 weeks on retreat with Matridasa in, um, in Gukiloka in Spain, in the mountains of Spain. So it was 16 weeks without all the things that I usually think I need to be happy. So it was 16 weeks without football. I'd had no news about football. 16 weeks without any sense distraction from TV or from the internet or social media. Um, there was no emails to check. Um, no, no kind of yeah, attractive people. Um, apart from the people that I was, I was with, like my, my Tadasa. <laughs> no, <laughs> only, the, only the same, the same attractive people every day. It was no, no, no new attractive people. So I was away from all the things that I would usually, I would usually think I need to be uh, happy. And, you know, I suppose it, it shouldn't come as a great surprise. I was actually deeply happy. I was deeply content. I was the most happy I've ever been really. Just those 16 weeks were just continuous happiness and joy and delight just every day. So, you know, this really is something in this. If you can live a simple life with few worries, you can be really deeply contented and happy. So why, why do we crave? I'm, I'm listening and talking wondering, why, why, do we, why do I crave all these things when they, they don't make me happy? So in a way, the Buddha says the conditions that need to be in place um, for our metta bhavana to go deep is an ethical life where we are reducing craving and calming our sense experience. And then the Buddha says, then you should meditate like this. So after we've put all these things in place, then you should meditate like this. And it's important to say, the Buddha isn't saying you can't meditate until you've got all these things in place because that, you know, in a way we probably never meditate. Um, 
But what it does mean is that your meditation, you can in a way really start properly going deeply with your meditation practice. You can have a real impact in your meditation practice when you have these things in place, when these conditions are in place. So you get these conditions in place and then meditate like this, thinking, may all beings be happy and secure. May all beings be happy in their heart of hearts. May all living things be well. The weak and the strong, the small and the large, those near and those far away, those you can see and those you can't, whether living now or yet to be born, may all living beings be happy in their heart of hearts. So you'll notice some of the, some of the phrases are implied in there and contained within that sutta. May living beings be well, may living beings be happy in their heart of hearts. So the metta bhavna has, has those ingredients of the phrases. But also, um, you can hear from the Buddha describing just it's a slightly different way into different types of people, but just basically loads and loads of different types of people, the weak and the strong, the young and the old, those near, those far away. Um, so what I want to do is just, is just really emphasize the importance of the categories in the metta bhavna, those five categories that we have in the metta bhavna practice, because if you, if you follow that structure and use those, those five categories, all that includes everybody in, you'll ever meet in your life, everybody, every type of response you'll have to every type of person is, is included in those five categories. There's people that you love, that you have that kind of pema, that kind of intense love for, but maybe it's conditional love. And then there's people that you're just indifferent to, that you don't care about. There's people that you hate and dislike. And there's basically everybody, all beings. So those categories are really, really important. Because um, what we're trying to do in those categories is, is cultivate an equal response um, karmically create an equal response of loving kindness to anybody that we encounter. So those categories, it's, it's just a small point, but important, but just to stress. Um, don't, you know, sometimes you might, might feel appropriate to drop the categories for a little while, but go back to them. They're really, really important, those five categories. And then the Buddha carries on. He says, May no one deceive or look down on another. May no one be angry with another. May no one react to another. May no one want another to suffer. And that's very, very beautiful. And I hear all of these words read out. They're very, very beautiful um, desires, really. Desire for no one to be angry with anybody else, for, for nobody to look down on another person or to want another to suffer. And it's very tempting to think, yeah, this, could nobody be angry? Nobody else be angry? All those angry people stop being angry and looking down at people. All those people who look down at people. But really what this applies to, or who this applies to, is us. It applies to ourselves because we react to other people all the time. All, every day we're reacting to people. We get angry with people. We want to deceive people. We look down on people. So, yeah, this is the, you know, the, the fourth, the fourth um, stage of the metta bhavana. We need to go beyond our dislikes. We need to cultivate a love, a deep love and a care for yeah, the people we look down on, the people we get angry with. It doesn't matter whether we like them or not, we can still love them, we can still love people, we can cultivate that. Um, I, know this, I know this to be true because I've done this as people that I strongly dislike and I love them. For, you know, I've, learned, I've been able to love them through this practice of the metta bhava. Um, and then the Buddha says, just as a mother cherishes her child, her only child, develop an unlimited heart of friendliness for all beings. Um, and this is a, a very, very beautiful verse, a very beautiful metaphor I, I, I find. Just as a mother cherishes her child, her only child, 
And I've seen this, this firsthand. I mean, I've experienced this with my own mother and I've seen this with um, my wife and our children. There's a particular, there can be a particularly intense bond between a mother and their child. And if it's your, your only child, um, you'd, kind of, you'd do anything to, to nurture and protect and, and um, develop your, your child. So I think this is, uh, yeah, again, the, the Buddha's evoking well, what, how the metabhavana can work. You start with that intense love that you feel for another being or you can feel for another being. And then you take that and you expand that to, to include other beings. That becomes a reference point. Um, and I experienced this, I mean, as, as a father with my, my son Robert, when, when Robert was born, I remember just making a, almost a prayer to Amitabha, really, a wish to Amitabha, saying, I know how strongly I love my son. Please, can you help me to love all beings in the same way as this? Because, you know, this is, this is what I'm aiming. I know what it's like to love someone that strongly. And I, this is what I'm... I, I'm being asked to develop in the, and challenged to develop in the metabhavana. So initially we, say, we tell people, don't put um, maybe partners or you know, family members in your metabhavana to start with. And that's because um, metta can easily be confused with pema, like I talked about earlier, like a conditional love that has attachments and conditions and expectations attached to it. Um, but once you're established in a metta practice and you know what metta is, is I think it's really important actually to use those really intense relationships we have and, and use the energy and the love we feel for those people and use that as the basis for, for our metabhavana practice. So the, the Buddha says, this love but for all beings, this intensely, this strongly but for every living being. And there's a key word, that the most important word in the whole of this is develop. Develop an unlimited heart of friendliness for the whole universe. So the Buddha is acknowledging, you know, you're not going to have this to start with. You need to develop this. You need to do work to cultivate this, to develop this heart. And that happens gradually. This is where the path of the lotus comes in. This development takes place slowly, methodically, systematically, gradually. We're retraining our heart and our mind in the metabhavana practice. We're karmically transforming it bit by bit. So the importance here is, is regular metabhavana practice, ideally every day. If you can do the metabhavana practice every day, you're going to cultivate after months, after years, a really unstoppable momentum of, of metta. You're going to really be well established, deeply established in metta. Um, so there's an analogy I've, I've heard used, which is like putting uh, a kettle on a stove to, to boil the water. And I was with um, Vidyavarchin on his allotment a few weeks ago, and it took ages to, for a kettle to boil. It took absolutely ages. It's like, but it's quite, it's, we had nothing else to do, so it was really fun just sitting waiting for the kettle to boil. But it took a very, very long time. And the analogy is if you keep taking that kettle off the stove, putting it on and taking it off again, it's never going to boil. And that's the analogy with med meditation. If you just do meditation a bit and then don't do any meditation, then do a bit more and then don't do any meditation, well, you're, you're not going to build that momentum. You're, you're not going to get the kettle to boil. You have to just do regular meditation practice every day, ideally, and then you build up a head of steam, really. You build up a motivator, uh, momentum in your practice. And again, you have to, you know, it comes out of conditions, you have to do this gradually and slowly. So it might be starting off with doing meditation three days a week or four days a week, and you build on that, or five minutes a day and ten minutes a day. But slowly, you know, slowly but slowly, you build a momentum, you build, it, you build up momentum. And then notice the effect it has, because you can, you can have confidence and have confidence and trust in, in the long-term effects of your practice. It might, as I said earlier, it might be that whilst you're on the cushion, it can feel like hard work or in, like painful sometimes, but just notice the long-term 
transformation of your inner world and your relationships and then have real confidence and trust in the practice. And from that kind of tenuous strand of meta within your heart, the kind of that, there's a strand within you that really cares for beings and wants everybody to be well. Um, you know, find that, find that in your, in your heart, find that in your metabarbana practice, find that strand within you and then cultivate it, familiarise yourself with it. What does that response feel like within you? What does it feel like to respond with meta to people? Really familiarise yourself with that, what that response feels like and then deepen it, strengthen it and cultivate it. And you can use the phrases, the traditional phrases to do that. Use your imagination to connect with the other, other people. Um, but yeah, but by, yeah, you can look for what's best in other people, like this quality that we talk, I talked about earlier. You can look at what is there to rejoice about this person. You know, try and see the, see the person with those eyes. Um, but in the metabarbana practice, you need to work to develop that. It is, it's a kind of training ground for the, for the heart and the mind. It's like going to the gym every morning. You know, you, you're training your heart and your mind in, in metta. And then the Buddha says, whether you're at home or traveling, whether you're standing, sitting or in bed, in all your hours, rest in this state of mind, which is like living in heaven right here and now. So basically the Buddha says, well, don't just do this in meditation. Do this all the time. Whatever you're doing, whether you're working, resting, traveling, lying down, whatever you're doing, rest in this state of loving kindness. And it's like living in heaven here and now. I mean, that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Just all the time, if you're resting in this state, it's like living in heaven here and now. So this goes back to ethics, actually. It shows that it's not just a progressive path of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Your meditation practice will be feeding back into your practice of ethics. The transformation you, you make in the metabarbana will be expressed in your behavior and your day-to-day activities, and that will, again, deepen the momentum in your meditation practice. So the three of them feed into each other. They're, they are de- very definitely progressive, but they also feed into each other. And we need to practice all of them from the outset. It's not like we have to wait we can't engage with wisdom practice or meditation until our ethics is perfect. We engage with all of them from the outset, but they, they're a progressive, a progressive path as well. So we deliberately look for what's best in other people and we want them to fulfill their potential. That's what, in the metabarbana, you're trying to cultivate that response where you really, really want that person to grow and to develop and to really fulfill their potential. You want that for them. Um, no matter what they're doing right now, you want them to become the person they could be. You really want that. And by strengthening that strand in your being, your consciousness changes. Um, it becomes more expansive, as I mentioned earlier, more beautiful, more abundant. And you start to live in a different world. You live more and more in a world that's full of beings with beautiful qualities and great potential, who you love deeply and who you feel deeply connected to. So out of the conditions of our ethical life and our efforts in meditation practice, our consciousness changes. And then we begin to see with the wisdom of Amitabha. So the path of kindness, the Metta Sutta, culminates with the final verses which, where the Buddha says, In this way you will leave all wrong views far behind. You will experience the spiritual insight that is beyond words and concepts. And completely going beyond craving you will be liberated from the wheel of samsara forever, which is enlightenment. You'll completely go beyond craving. You'll be enlightened through this path of of kindness, the path of metta. So this is the path of kindness, the path of growth. It's like a manual in how to grow a lotus, how to kind of bloom lotus flowers. It's the the Karaniya Metta Sutta. 
So we begin by living a simple life, an ethical life, which tames our ego and subdues, subdues our craving and calms our sense experience. Then we can really work on our hearts and our minds in meditation. We can engage in that weighty karmic practice, strengthening that strand in us that really cares for other people, strengthening that response in relation to all the different categories of people in our lives. And each time we're doing this, we're transforming our consciousness a little bit. And slowly, very slowly, gradually, we build up momentum. More and more we see what's best in other people. And more and more we long to draw it out of other people. Through our deeds of kindness and our words of kindness, we want to draw that out of people. It's like the sun. Our kindness causes other people to blossom like flowers. Until eventually we begin to see with the wisdom of Amitabha, we, we see and we love the unique qualities in all beings. And like Amitabha, we develop an unlimited heart for all beings. So like Amitabha, like the infinite sunlight shining on all beings in all places. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.